Well, good evening. Welcome to Bible study. We need to make a start. Okay, thank you for coming out tonight. I hope you've got, hope you've got some notes with you that will help you uh, throughout the study. Uh, it's basically just the outline because that's what we're doing tonight, working through uh, the book. Uh, but before we make a start, uh, we will open with a word of prayer. So let's pray. Father God, we do thank you uh, for this day that you've given to us. I do thank you that we can uh, finish the day by spending some time uh, studying your word. The Lord, I do pray that you would help us tonight as we work our way uh, through the book of Matthew. I do pray that we would see uh, how it's uh, put together and uh, how, how it all uh, fits in uh, with the big idea of the particular book. And uh, Lord, I do pray that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we began considering uh, the book of Matthew and we basically looked at developing an understanding of what the book is all about. So we looked at historical background and an outline for the book, who wrote the book, when it was written, and all of that information. And tonight we're going to go through the book. Uh, there's 28 chapters, and we're going to do it in this time slot. It's amazing. Um, I was getting a little bit panicky when I started yesterday, and I'm like, oh, two and a half thousand words, and I'm only up to like chapter six. I'm like, man. But I picked up some speed and edited a bit out, and it worked out. Uh, we're going to use the outline that I revealed to you last week. I will say I have made a couple of changes. Uh, I realized I doubled up a word, and you know that's cheating in alliteration if I use the same word, so I had to think of a different P word. And there was just another couple of little changes uh, as I worked through the outline. So as we work our way through this outline, we need to keep the big idea at the forefront of our minds to refresh your memories. If you're taking this as a college class, make sure you know what this is in your quiz. It's about the king and his kingdom. It demonstrates that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the king of the Jews, the one promised in the Old Testament. So that's what Matthew is all about. So with that in mind, let's begin to survey the text, endeavoring to understand how it all fits together and fulfills the big idea of the gospel. So the first part of the outline, point number one, is the person of the king. There we go. The person of the king. We see this in chapter 1, verse 1, through to chapter 3 and uh, verse 12. You'll be relieved we're not going to read the whole book. <laughs> Otherwise, we would be here uh, for a long time. I'll endeavor to put some of the text up on the screen for you. Now, the person of the king, I've got it broken up under three headings. The first is uh, the ancestry uh, of the king in verses 1 through to 17. Now, I want you to notice how the gospel begins. It says, the book of the generation. Now, what's very interesting with this phrase is that it's the same Greek phrase that the Septuagint uses to translate that word that I've been saying on Sunday morning, toledon. It's actually the same phrase. So we've seen that throughout our study of Genesis. Now, Matthew quickly identifies that Jesus comes through both the line of David and Abraham. Okay, he makes that point in verse 1. And then he lists a genealogy of Jesus. And he goes from Abraham, okay, 
through David, and the particular structure is revealed in verse 17. And there are three groups of 14 generations, so that's how it's structured. Now, what's interesting about this genealogy is that it includes four women from the Old Testament, and that's unusual, particularly since some of them had skeletons in the closet. They didn't have a wonderful past. So we see Tamar, we see Rahab, we see Ruth, and we see Bathsheba. So in the line, we have ex-prostitutes, a Moabite, and one who had an affair with a king. But what this illustrates for us is a wonderful theological point, and that is Jesus was willing to identify with sinners. And that's very important because that's what the cross is all about. But the question is, what's the point of this genealogy? Why does Matthew include it? Well, it's all about proving that Jesus has the right lineage to be king. You will notice it traces the line of Joseph. And we need to remember, Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus, but he was the legal father. And the legal rights pass through the father, even if it was a foster father or a stepfather, never through the mother. So this establishes Jesus' legal rights to the throne. And what's interesting is that Jewish genealogies have been destroyed. Because in AD 70, when Jerusalem was tore apart, it led to the destruction of most documentation. And hence, Jesus is the only one who can trace his lineage all the way back to David. So only Jesus has the credentials to be king. Okay, next we see... Sorry, gone too far. The Advent. You probably can't read that. I was trying to fit it on one slide. Sorry about that. But uh, Matthew tells the Advent story from the standpoint of Joseph. And there are several crucial things for us to identify. Now, throughout this section, we read the phrase that we identified last week, must be fulfilled or thus it is written. So we see this several times. We see it in verse 22 of chapter 1. Then into chapter 2, we see it in verse 6, verse 25, verse 27, sorry, verse 17 and verse 23. And what this does is it connects the birth of Jesus to the Old Testament. Okay, Jesus' birth is fulfilling scripture, and it shows us that the birth of Jesus is not just an ordinary birth. Now, in the account with Joseph, it stresses that Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit. So Joseph was not his biological dad. And what this does is it proves that Jesus is the Son of God. In order to be the Messiah, Jesus had to be divine. Now, we're also told that Joseph would name the child, and his name would be Jesus. And he would be named Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. And this particular inclusion is vital, particularly to a Jewish audience, because it reveals the type of king that Jesus would be. Jesus would not just be a political savior, Okay, that's what the Jews longed for, and Jesus was often misunderstood because of that reason. And many of the Jews may have expected a political savior after reading this genealogy. Okay, Jesus is someone from the line of Christ. Finally, we're going to have a king, and they're going to overthrow these Romans. You know, that's going to be wonderful. Okay, so this is important to correct some misconceptions. Now, the events in chapter 2... This confirms the identity of Jesus. So in chapter 2, we meet the wise men. It's only here in Matthew that we read of them. 
and we had these Gentile men who came to worship a baby and gave extravagant gifts. Okay, why? Well, this proves that he is the king. This proves that he is God. And then we have the attempts of Herod to exterminate Jesus. Herod was a very wicked man. And this shows that he regarded Jesus as a threat. Because the wise men had come in and said, where's the king of the Jews? And he's like, what king of the Jews? If there's a king of the Jews, that means I could lose my position. So he went about exterminating these threats. He viewed Jesus as a rival king. And what this illustrates is the two different responses to Jesus. We have one that's worship, okay, that's the wise man. And then you've got hateful rejection, that was Herod. And we actually see this pattern right throughout the book of Matthew, okay, those two particular responses. And those two particular responses exist right up until today, okay? Love and worship Jesus or you reject Jesus, okay? What will be our response? Now, this particular part of the story is full of divine intervention and protection. And again, this is further evidence that Jesus is not just an ordinary child. Now, all the evidence considered is designed to prove that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Messiah. And this continues to be proven under the next uh, sub-point, which is the ambassador, which is John the Baptist. So now we're into uh, chapter 3. And the first first 12 verses. Now, Matthew actually skips 30 years of Jesus' life. And he picks up the story with the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, verse 3 makes it very clear that John's function was to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, in Bible times, a Herod would, sorry, not a Herod, a Herald would go before Herod, the king, and he would announce that the king is coming. Okay, get yourself ready. The king will be here soon. And that was the function of John the Baptist. And again, the inclusion of this helps people to see that Jesus is ticking all the Old Testament boxes in regards to Messiah, because the Old Testament teaches that there would be someone preparing the way for Messiah. Now, in verse 11, it gives the Baptist testimony. And uh, he was very certain that there was something unique and special about Jesus. Okay, so that ends the first point of the outline. So let's now move into the preparation of the king. And this is from chapter 3, verse 13, through to chapter 4 and verse 11. So this is all about preparing for the commencement of the earthly ministry of Jesus. And there are two significant events described here, his baptism and the temptation. So let's look at the baptism. This is recorded in verses 13 to 17. Okay, now Jesus came to be baptized, and initially John refuses. He said, no, I I don't want to do that. Why? Well, Jesus had no sin to repent of. Okay, he was perfect. And that was the whole idea behind this type of baptism, baptism of repentance. And this testimony of the Baptist is further evidence of the divinity of Jesus. Jesus had no sin. That was what John the Baptist believed. This proves that he is the long-awaited Messiah. Now, Jesus in verse 15, he tells John that we have to do this because it's required to fulfill all righteousness. So, in other words, this is part of Jesus' duty. It was necessary. And this baptism, it signifies the commencement of Jesus' earthly ministry. 
But the baptism is also about Jesus identifying with sinners. Okay, that, that is the big theological point with Jesus being baptized. And again, this is a clue as to the type of Messiah that Jesus was going to be. Jesus was here to deal with sin. Now, after Jesus comes out of the water, something amazing happens. Okay, in verse 16, Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit. And this is significant for at least two reasons. Okay, number one, a king would be anointed with oil in the Old Testament. Okay, oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. So here's Jesus, the king, being anointed with the reality, okay, the Holy Spirit, not merely a symbol. So here Jesus is being identified and set apart as the king. And then the second reason why this is significant is Isaiah 11.2 and Isaiah 61 verse 1. Okay, teaches that the Messiah will have the spirit of the Lord upon him and his ministry will be empowered by the spirit. Okay, so again, this is further evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's what this scene is about. It's confirming Jesus to be the messianic king. And the ultimate approval of Jesus is given in verse 17, because there the Father speaks. Okay, God the Father says, okay, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And there is no greater evidence to prove that Jesus is God and the long-awaited king. Now, after his baptism, okay, this is such a glorious display. Okay, the Holy Spirit is descended like a dove. Okay, voice of the Father, we expect to read powerful preaching. We expect to read of miracles and people following him. But instead, we go to the temptation of Jesus. So Jesus was led into the wilderness. And you will see in chapter 4 that he was led by the Holy Spirit. Okay, verse 1 says, then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness okay and he was led there to be tempted by the devil this is all part of god's plan i was told that jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and that has all kinds of old testament connotations attached to it now during this time satan tempted jesus on three separate occasions now it's interesting that 1 john 2 16 reveals three ways that temptation strikes lust of the eyes lust of the flesh and the pride of life okay, and satan employed all three as he sought to tempt Jesus. Now, at its heart, okay, these temptations were attacking the messianic ministry. Okay, it was tempting Jesus to take a shortcut. It, it was tempting Jesus with the kingdom, with the glory, without the cross. It was tempting Jesus to act independently of the Father and to act through his own power rather than through the Spirit. So that, that's the essence of the temptations. But Jesus overcome all three temptations. And what's particularly instructive for us is how he did it. Okay, when Jesus was tempted the first time, he overcome it by quoting scripture. When he's tempted again, how did he overcome it? By quoting scripture. He was tempted a third time. Okay, is there a different way? No, he quoted scripture again. That was how Jesus dealt with temptation. And it's interesting, he used the Old Testament Okay, so that validates the sufficiency of the Old Testament. And there's a lesson for us. Okay, how do we defeat temptation when it comes our way? We need to know the Scriptures. Okay, that is key. 
Now, here at the temptations of Jesus, we see a number of things. We see that Jesus is greater than Adam. Because if you go back to the Garden of Eden, Adam failed the temptation, but Jesus did not. Okay, Jesus is the one that's greater than Adam. Okay, this reveals the perfection of Jesus. This reveals his sinlessness, which means he is a qualified savior. And here in context, it reveals that he was morally and spiritually qualified to be Israel's king. So having passed the temptation, Jesus began his public ministry, which is the next big section in the book of Matthew. It's called the Proclamation of the King. Okay, there's two subpoints. The first uh, is his ministry. And we see this in chapter 4, verses 12 through to 25. Now, Matthew does not uh, include the early Judean ministry of Jesus. Okay, that's recorded for us in the Gospel of John. Uh, but his focus is on Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And Jesus ends up making Capernaum his home base, if you like. And that was because of persecution that was happening elsewhere. Jesus could function in this area and train his disciples while avoiding a premature reaction from the leaders in Jerusalem. Obviously, we don't want the cross to come too early, working to God's timetable. And the calling of some of his disciples is included in this section of Matthew, although that doesn't necessarily fit chronologically. Now, what we read about Jesus at this time is he goes about preaching and teaching and healing performing miracles and it's interesting that there were more gentiles in the galilee area so jesus was ministering to both jew and gentile now in verse 17 of chapter 4 okay i pointed this out last week there's an important phrase it says from that time and this is repeated again in chapter 16 verse 21 and we'll get to that shortly okay but this reveals jesus focus at the time and it was preaching Okay, that was his focus. Okay, at the start of his ministry, he was preaching and teaching. Okay, and he began to experience quite a lot uh, of popularity okay, as he taught. Okay, we see in verse 23 that the synagogues, okay, that was a common place of teaching, and that reminds us that this was written to a Jewish audience. Now, throughout this account, there is much said about miracles. Now, again, when Jesus performs a miracle... And the particular miracles that Matthew records, it's all about confirming that he is Messiah. He's not performing a miracle just for the sake of it. And as he is preaching and teaching, as he's performing miracles, he began to experience a lot of popularity. And in verse 25, there was quite a large gathering of people. And Jesus made the most of this opportunity and he began to preach what is probably the most famous sermon in history. And uh, that's the next section. And uh, I couldn't fit it on one slide. It's like three chapters. I did try, but I was like, way too small. Uh, I've called it his manifesto. And it takes up chapter 5, 6, and 7. And uh, this section is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the first of five teaching sections in this gospel. And this contains some very famous portions of Scripture. And there's uh, an insight into the contents of the sermon up there on the screen. So in chapter 5, we have uh, the Beatitudes. Then we move into salt and light. And then verses 17 to 48 has the precepts of the Christian life. And what Jesus does here is he shows that Jesus didn't come to abolish the Old Testament, but he elaborates upon it. 
And what he actually does is he ends up bringing out the heart requirements of the Old Testament. So it's not mere external conformity. And you'll say something like, you have heard it said, okay, do not kill. And then Jesus will elaborate on that and go, but that also means about anger. Okay, so he actually expounds okay, on the law. Jesus reveals his interpretation. Now, when we get into chapter 6, we could refer to this as practices in the kingdom. We have almsgiving, prayer. Okay, that's the Lord's Prayer that's recorded there. Really, it should be called the Disciples' Prayer because it's for us. Then we have teaching on fasting, on money, and on anxiety. And it's in chapter 6 where we have that famous verse, but seek ye first the kingdom of God. Then when we move into chapter 7, uh, the topic of judging uh, is in those first six verses, and that's where it talks about, okay, if you've got a beam sticking out of your own eye, don't try and pull a splinter out of someone else's eye. You know, it's really a funny image. Uh, I, again, Jesus talks about prayer, and then he talks about how we relate to others, and then it concludes with the application of the sermon. And in the application, it talks about the straight gate and the broad gate, okay, so the narrow path, the broad path. It talks about the importance of having the right fruit and also the wise man and the foolish man come at the end of that sermon. Okay, so that whole song that we teach the children, okay, that is about how you respond to the sermon that Jesus taught. Now, this sermon by Jesus, okay, what, what's it all about? How does it fit? Well, it's all about what life will look like in his kingdom. Okay, this is kingdom living. This is how those who are in his kingdom will live. Okay, one writer put it like this. This sermon demonstrates Christ's legislative, judicial, and administrative rights to the Jewish throne. As the king, he had the right to make up the laws of his kingdom, to interpret those laws, and to execute them. Okay, so that is the Sermon on the Mount. The next uh, big section is the power of of the king. Now this section of the gospel records many miracles. Now what's interesting as I read through this today, faith occurs in nearly all of the miracles, okay? So the importance of faith is being emphasized. Now you'll see here too there are a list of varying miracles. It's not just one type or two types, but there's a broad range. Now here's an outline of uh, the section. So Jesus shows he has authority over disease, authority over nature, authority over demons, authority to forgive sin, authority over the will of man, authority over death, authority over blindness and dumbness, and authority to delegate authority. Now the question we need to ask is this, okay, why did Matthew include these miracles? And this is an especially important question because the narrative is not chronological. Okay, the, these miracles have been chosen for a specific purpose. So why choose these miracles and why not choose some other miracles in light of the big idea of the gospel? Well, these miracles that are recorded here are his credentials. So they verify his power and his authority in every realm. So these miracles prove that Jesus is the rightful king of Israel, that he is the Messiah. Okay, this is all about proving his messiahship. And it is interesting, okay, throughout, that the leaders of Israel are mentioned. So these miracles were designed to alert them that Messiah was here. Now, these miracles may also be a foreshadowing 
of what life will be like in the messianic kingdom okay when jesus does establish his kingdom on earth and we're going to look at this on sunday night that's why it's uh, on my mind okay but in the messianic kingdom there will be no disease there'll be no sickness and there'll be no satanic or demonic influence because satan is chained he's bound for a thousand years okay so these miracles may give a glimpse okay of the reality that is to come but unfortunately despite the abundance of evidence proving that jesus is messiah a lot of people rejected or doubted him and this leads into the next section of the book which we've called people's problems with the king now in this section there are three major scenes and they all record improper reactions to jesus okay the first is the doubt of john the baptist so we see this in chapter 11 verses 1 to 15. now this is surprising because we see doubt creeping in to john the baptist okay the, the one who is described as you know the greatest man okay below jesus okay there's john and here he is questioning whether jesus is really the christ okay his whole ministry was about preparing the way for jesus so why waver now well i, I think it goes something like this okay how can the kingdom be established when i the forerunner am locked up in prison that doesn't make sense and the people are starting to reject jesus again that doesn't make sense okay there's meant to be the kingdom everyone's meant to be following jesus john expected an earthly kingdom in his lifetime and this was a common misconception now it's interesting that jesus points john to the miracles okay when the disciples of john come and you john's having these doubts jesus says we well, go you go to him and you tell him look at the miracles look at what i've done Okay, that was the evidence of his messiahship and verses four and five okay this indicates that jesus gave more than enough evidence to prove who he is now this account is followed by more extreme opposition so this is not just doubting jesus but this is rejecting jesus so the first rejection comes from the cities and this is in chapter 11 verses 16 to 30. now jesus here indicts the cities of galilee okay three cities are mentioned and some call these cities the gospel triangle and the reason why they have that name is because they were the center of jesus ministry he performed more miracles he had preached more he had taught more in those areas and here jesus teaches of a, a very important principle the greater the revelation the greater the responsibility okay that's jesus point here but it's interesting that even at this time as he pronounces this indictment on these cities chapter 11 concludes with a gracious invitation come to christ for rest okay all you who are heavy laden can you come to me and i will give you rest but then the text focuses on the most intense rejection of jesus and this is a key turning point in his ministry jesus has experienced opposition up until this point but now okay the heat is really turned up so to speak and this is the opposition of the pharisees 
And this is recorded in chapter 12, okay, verses 1 through to 50. Now, this chapter is all about opposition from the Pharisees, opposition from the religious people. And one of their fundamental issues against Jesus is that they claim that Jesus broke the law, okay, such as eating grain on the Sabbath or healing on the Sabbath. That's how chapter 12 starts. But what we need to understand, okay, in reality, Jesus was not breaking the law. Okay, Jesus never broke the law. Jesus was going against the traditions. Jesus was going against man's interpretations, things that have been added to the law. And it was this that infuriated the Pharisees. Now, in this chapter, the Pharisees arrived at what we could call a point of no return. They saw all the miracles. Okay, they'd heard Jesus' teaching. And it's interesting that with the miracles, they didn't deny them. Okay, they didn't say, no, you, you never did that. Okay, they couldn't deny it. What they did was they accused Jesus of performing the miracles in the power of Satan. And this provoked a stinging response from Jesus. Okay, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin. And this really is the key turning point in the ministry of Jesus. Because from then, okay, the focus changed to the cross. Okay, because the nation has rejected the Messiah. And the point here for the original readers who Matthew was writing to, and the point for us, is don't be like John and doubt Jesus. Okay, that the miracles remove all the doubt. And at the end, I don't want to ruin it too much, okay, but the greatest proof is the resurrection, okay, which we'll get to. Okay, so don't doubt like John and don't reject him like the Pharisees because Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. Don't doubt or reject him. Now, the next section uh, in Matthew is the parables of the king. And this is in chapter 13. Now, this chapter is often referred to as the parables of the kingdom or kingdom parables. Now, it is important to note that Jesus taught the same day of the events that followed in the previous chapter. So he's teaching the same day that he's been rejected by the Pharisees. And due to this rejection, Jesus employs parables a lot more in his teaching. We see this a lot towards the back end of his earthly ministry. And this too was a fulfillment of Scripture. You've seen verses 34 and 35. And parables are designed to reveal truth to believers, but to conceal it to unbelievers. Now, there are some interesting uh, interpretations floating around when it comes to Matthew chapter 13. Some of these parables are a little tricky, but there are nine parables in total. And the idea seems to be that Israel has rejected Messiah. Israel has rejected the kingdom. Yes, it will come to pass at a later time. That's at the second coming of Christ. But these particular parables outline the kingdom program between those times. And this is not revealed in the Old Testament, hence this is why it's called a mystery in verse 11. So we could say this is what it's going to be like in the king's absence. And hence there's an emphasis on preaching the word. And there's also an emphasis on the difficulty of determining whether one is genuine or not. So these parables speak into the current time of God's kingdom plans. 
So with Israel having rejected the king and his kingdom, Jesus' focus changes and the cross starts to take center stage. But so does the preparation of the disciples because Jesus' disciples were going to play a major role in what's to come since the kingdom was rejected. And this leads into our next major point. Point seven, the preparation of the disciples by the king. Now, there is an awful lot that's happening uh, in this period. We see that the opposition continues. Uh, There's the beheading of John the Baptist, and and the pressure and animosity of the Pharisees is increasing. And Jesus looks to encourage his disciples in the midst of the persecution, and he also looks to prepare them for what's to come. Now, here's an outline of this section. We had the reassurance of the disciples from 14.1 through to 16.12. We had the prediction of the church in 16.13 through to verse 20. The first announcement of his death in 16.21 to 27. His transfiguration in 16.28 through to 17.21. The second announcement of his death in chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. Teachings on offenses, humility, and forgiveness Chapter 17, 24 through to 20, verse 16. And then the third announcement of his death in chapter 20, verses 17 to 34. Okay, and there's a change in focus that Matthew highlights in verse 21 of chapter 16. Remember, I I mentioned the two times this happens right back at the start. And we see in verse 21, from that time forth. Okay, so the focus is now on the cross. And this change in focus was brought about by the Jewish rejection of Jesus. Now, in this section, Jesus three times mentions his pending death to his disciples. And this is all about preparing them for what's to come, because this was going to rattle them. This was not well received by the disciples initially. And it seems they didn't understand a lot about the cross until after the event. A crucified king was a paradox to them. It shouldn't have been because it's spoken about in the Old Testament. But to them, it didn't make sense. They too had a political savior concept in their minds. Now, Jesus also teaches about the church. This is the only place in the Gospels where the church is mentioned. But this is revealing what's going to happen since Israel rejected the Messiah and the kingdom. And the disciples were going to play a key role in the establishing of the church. Now, another key event in this section is what's called the transfiguration. And at that time, Jesus reveals some of his glory. And this event showed that God the Father approved of Jesus, even though mankind, even though the religious leaders were rejecting him. And it was also a foreshadowing of the glory of Christ when the messianic kingdom comes. And it must have also been a great encouragement to the disciples who saw it. Now, this section also includes teaching that would help the disciples greatly when it comes to executing God's plans and purposes. But the cross has certainly become the focus. And this leads into the next section, which are called the presentation and rejection of the king. From chapter 21, verse 1 through to chapter 23, verse 39. Now, from chapter 21, we come to the last week uh, before the cross. It's often called the Passion Week. And the first event is what's called his presentation. 
And this is in chapter 21, verses 1 to 22. This is normally known as the triumphant entry. Jesus enters to Jerusalem on a donkey and all the people cry out, Hosanna. Uh, This whole scene is about fulfilling prophecy. Uh, We see familiar words in verse 4. It says, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. Okay, so this, this is all about fulfilling scripture. And again, Jesus' whole orchestration of this scene makes it clear that he believed he was the Messiah. Okay, he would not have claimed this worship as his own if he did not believe he was the Messiah. Okay, so that's the declaration from this scene. Now, this is usually referred to as the presentation of Jesus. And some scholars will say that this is one last presentation of the kingdom to Israel. So this is a final rejection of the kingdom. And that could be the case. Uh, I believe that boat's already sailed, personally. And this is Jesus presenting himself as the Lamb. Because this is in harmony with Lamb Selection Day, which is a part of Passover. So the question is, would they select Jesus as their Passover Lamb? Now, following his entry into the city, two things are recorded. We have the cleansing of the temple, and that really infuriated the religious leaders. If they weren't already angry, they certainly were now. This chucked fuel on the fire, and this really provoked them. It pushed them toward pursuing the death of Jesus. And then there is a very interesting miracle recorded, and that's the cursing of the fig tree. Okay, this is the only miracle of destruction coming from Jesus. And this miracle was an illustration of Israel, particularly the leaders. They gave the appearance of fruit, but they had none. Okay, it was all a facade. They weren't okay, born again. They weren't spiritual, and hence they were cursed. God's judgment was coming. And this a fig tree miracle, it illustrates what happens when the king is rejected. When you reject the king, it will result in judgment. But the cleansing of the temple really provoked the religious leaders. And this leads us into the next section. That one, I think it is. So this is in uh, chapter 21. Verse 23 through to 2246, and this is the rejection of Christ by the nation. Now, in this section, the authority of Jesus is challenged. Okay, this is how it commences. By what authority have you cleansed the temple? Okay, well, what gives you the right to do that? But they're not very successful in their attempts to ensnare Jesus. And at this point, Jesus uses three parables. And these were used to describe the religious leader's relationship with God. And verse 43 is important. It pictures really what's a transference. Okay, things are going to change. Israel and its leaders, they had rejected the king. They had rejected his kingdom. And hence, okay, there's going to be a change. It's coming. It's called the church. Now, following these parables, there are questions asked of Jesus. Two from the Pharisees and one from the Sadducees. And these questions were designed to trap Jesus. They didn't care what the answer was. They're trying to ensnare him. They're trying to get him executed. There was a question about tax. There's a question about the resurrection. And there's a question about the greatest commandment. But here's the ironic thing. They failed in their endeavor. They couldn't trap Jesus. And then Jesus turned the tables on them. And they got ensnared by a question from Jesus. 
Okay, but this is what it's all about. Okay, it's making it clear that the people had rejected Jesus. And when one rejects Jesus, he will reject them, which is what we see next. Okay, we see the rejection of the nation by Christ. And this is in chapter 23, verses 1 to 39. Okay, this chapter contains seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. And there's very strong language one writer called it a blistering denunciation okay, where they are rebuked publicly for their pride, hypocrisy, and spiritual blindness. Okay, they were the religious experts. They were the ones who knew the Old Testament scriptures and yet they had rejected Messiah. And what Jesus does is by presenting woe upon woe is giving proof for the justification of the judgment that was coming their way. Okay, Jerusalem had rejected Messiah and hence judgment would be unleashed upon them. Okay, they rejected the king and they would feel the consequences of that rejection. And the point of this section for those first readers of the gospel and for us today is don't make the same mistake as the religious leaders. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the king. Don't reject the king. Now, this section closes with Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. And this is an important scene because it reveals the heart of Christ. He didn't hate those religious leaders. He didn't hate those who rejected him. Okay, he wanted to love, care, and protect them like a hen does its chicks. A beautiful picture. But that was rejected. Israel rejected the king. And this will continue until the coming of the Lord. Okay, that speaks of the second coming. And this is mentioned in the last verse of chapter 23, which then leads us to our next main section, which is the prophecy of the king. And this is chapters 24 and 25. So having spoken about the destruction that was coming upon Jerusalem and that Jesus would not come back until they were ready to receive him, the disciples had some questions for Jesus. And the answers to those questions form what we call the Olivet Discourse. Now, it has its name because Jesus taught at the Mount of Olives. And this is teaching his disciples. And what these two chapters are all about are things to come. So this is Jesus' teaching on eschatology. You know, and this teaching has within it, it has didactic discourse. Okay, so that's teaching discourse. And then it has numeral, numeral, numerous parables to illustrate that which he's been teaching. Now, the central message contains two elements. Okay, number one, our Lord is warning that before he returns, the world will become more and more hostile to the people of God. And then the second thing is he's urging people to be prepared for his coming and the judgments that are associated with it. And these two themes dominate the whole discourse, including the parables found within it. Now, when it comes to understanding this particular section of prophecy, it's vital for us to remember that Jesus is teaching on the second coming and the establishment of the Messianic kingdom, okay, the millennial kingdom. So this teaching here does not address the rapture. Okay, that's so important. It doesn't speak about the rapture in these chapters. Okay, nothing in these two chapters speak 
of the rapture. Remember, it's Israel. It's the Jews who are in focus, not the church. So this is vital in interpreting this correctly. And a lot of people get in trouble because they read the rapture into this text when it's not about that. So the signs listed in this text, these are signs of the second coming of Christ, not the rapture. Okay, and there are striking similarities with the book of Revelation, okay, which we'll work through in our evening service. Read Revelation 6 and 7. So the Olivet Discourse is not about the rapture phase when Jesus will only return in the clouds to take the church, but about his second coming when he will return to the earth, when he will rule and reign on the earth. If you want to hear more about that, tune in Sunday night. Now, there are certainly things that we can learn and applications that can be drawn, but it's important to remember this, okay? That will help us to correctly interpret this text. Okay, and the reason why this lengthy discourse is included, okay, why include two chapters on prophecy when the cross is almost here? Okay, well, it's to encourage the disciples and to encourage the early readers that the king will return. Okay, remember when this is written, Jesus had already ascended. The king will return. The king will establish his kingdom. Although the kingdom and the king was rejected the first time, there is a time coming when the king will reign. He will reign on earth. His kingdom will be established on earth. That's the point and purpose of the Olivet Discourse. So having completed uh, his teaching, in chapter 26 and verse 2, Jesus shifts the disciples' focus to the Passover. And this brings us to the next main section of the gospel, the passion of the king. So Jesus had turned his attention toward the cross, and now we move toward the crucifixion. So I've got three subpoints to break up this particular section. So firstly is eating the Passover. This is in chapter 26, verses 1 to 46. So this section begins by identifying the plans of the religious leaders to have Jesus killed. And then it moves to the anointing of Jesus. Do you remember the story? There's the ointment that's worth a lot of money, and this lady pours it on Jesus. This is an act of love and worship. And she anointed him, you know, perhaps anticipating his death and burial. You know, maybe she understood the full significance of what was coming. She seems to understand a lot more than the disciples did. Okay, as an act of love and worship, she anointed him, anticipating his death and burial. But this was the final straw for Judas. Okay, Judas could no longer handle it. Okay, after this event, he went out and he betrayed the Lord. He sold him for a price. Now, what follows this uh, is the Passover. Okay, the Passover, of course, has its roots back in Exodus. And this particular Passover was very significant because Jesus was about to become the Passover lamb. That's what he'd do at the cross. He would fulfill the Passover. Okay, that's why Paul can say, as he writes to the Corinthians, Jesus is our Passover. And at this particular point, he instituted the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. He identified Judas to be the betrayer. And then this this is followed by a very somber time as Jesus predicted the denial of Peter. And then we follow Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane and there are three prayers recorded. And this this is a time of unprecedented emotional and spiritual distress. 
Okay, Jesus knows what's coming. Okay, that the sin of humanity is going to be placed on him. And, you know, he's sweating drops of blood as, as he realizes what's coming. Now, as Jesus was praying, uh, his arrest was fastly approaching. And this leads to the next point, rejecting the Passover lamb. Okay, in this section, we see the arrest of Jesus. Okay, Judas betrayed him. There was the betrayer's kiss and the soldiers arrested Jesus. And toward the end of chapter 26, there are two more mentions of scriptures being fulfilled. So again, this is all in harmony with the Old Testament. Now, having been arrested, Jesus is then brought to trial. Matthew records three separate trials. There are six in total, but only three here. The first is before the high priest Caiaphas. The second trial is before the Sanhedrin. And the third trial was before Pilate. Now, the thing is with these trials is that they were a mockery of justice. Uh, we don't have time to get, go into this in detail, but okay, they were held at the wrong time. Okay, they shouldn't have been held at night time. Uh, they were in the wrong place. They were without benefit of counsel. They were before false witnesses. They were accompanied by beatings, and he was subject to death contrary to the evidence. Now, it is very important that Pilate actually declared that Jesus was not guilty. Okay, that was Pilate's declaration, but he didn't have the courage to release him because he was fearful of the crowd. So he condemned Jesus to be crucified. And it also shows that the people realized that he was innocent as well. Because if he had done something wrong, why not go through the proper trial process? Okay, but they never did. Okay, they had to do the dodgy, so to speak, because they could get nothing on him because he was innocent. Okay, so Pilate, uh, he lacked courage he had no courage and it resulted in the crucifixion okay the sacrificing the passover lamb okay jesus became the fulfillment of the passover lamb he was beaten forced to carry his cross he was crucified he died the death of a criminal despite being sinless and there are some very interesting details included in this narrative which is very fitting of matthew's purpose in writing and the target audience now, we could say that the climax in his gospel is reached when he records the superscription of the cross. Okay, it says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Okay, this has been Matthew's whole point to prove that Jesus is the king of the Jews, and yet they crucified the king. Okay, but this sign is a reminder that just because Jesus was crucified, that okay, does not mean that he isn't the king. Okay, he is still the king. You know, it also includes the renting of the veil in the temple. Okay, that's something that would have concerned a Jewish audience. Okay, the Greeks or the Romans, they couldn't care less about that. And it also speaks about graves opened and the fact that some were resurrected and testified in Jerusalem. What's that all about? Uh, we'll, we'll save that for another time. But, you know, this is all evidence that this is not a normal death. Okay, there's something unusual about this, and it's designed to remind them that he is still the king. Now, verses 57 to 66 record the burial of Jesus. Now, why is the burial of Jesus important? Well, it confirms that he was dead. Okay, it's important that Jesus died. That's the penalty for sin. Okay, and the religious leaders actually put all kinds of safeguards in place to make sure that no resurrection hoax was a possibility. Okay, and that, that's the irony of it. Little did they realize they're actually aiding in the veracity of the resurrection okay, because they put all of these safeguards in place. 
Now this leads us into the final point, which is called the proof of the king. We see the king's resurrection in verses 1 to 15 of chapter 28. Now, there has already been evidence upon evidence proving that Jesus is the king, that he is Messiah, but the greatest proof is the resurrection. And the recording of the resurrection, along with the evidence for it, changes everything. Okay? If you can prove that the resurrection never happened, okay, Christianity falls apart. Okay? If the resurrection is not true, our faith is vain, we're wasting our time. But if the resurrection is true, it changes everything. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ was and is the greatest proof of the Father's acceptance of Christ's work. Okay, how do we know that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to save us from our sins? Okay, how do we know that? How can we be sure? Well, the resurrection. Okay, that's the divine stamp of approval that the sacrifice was accepted. And the resurrection okay, is also proof, it's also evidence of Christ's right to rule. His claims were clearly demonstrated to be valid because of the resurrection. It proves that Jesus is the king and has every right to reign. And you know, one day he will return. One day he will reign. But until then, he's given his orders. And this is the final section of the gospel. The king's requirements, verses 16 to 20. Okay, Jesus is the king. That's been proven beyond a doubt. One day, he's going to return to establish his kingdom. Okay, that's discussed in, in chapters 25, 24 and 25. But until that time, the king has given his orders. And he instructed his disciples first, and then all those who would follow him. Okay, what are we to do? Well, we're to share the gospel and make disciples. That's the king's orders. But here's the thing, not only did he tell us what to do, but he also gave us what we need to do it. Okay, he gives us power through the Spirit and he promises to go with us. So he doesn't just give us this impossible task and we think, well, how in the world can we do that? Okay, he gives us this massive task, but he gives us everything that we need to be able to perform the task. And this is the job entrusted to all the followers of Jesus. Okay, and remember, Jesus is the King. We're not the king. We come under the king. We submit to him. Okay, one day he will establish his kingdom on this earth. And that's a wonderful thing that we look forward to. But until then, we need to be doing what we've been commanded to do. Okay, and we do this in the authority of Jesus. So anyone says, why are you sharing this with me? Because I'm doing an authority of Jesus. Jesus told me to do it. And we have his enabling to share the good news. Okay, so that is the task entrusted to us by the king. Okay, and this brings to a close uh, our study in Matthew. And from it, I hope we can see very clearly that Jesus is the king. Okay, the Bible is very clear. Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus is the Lord of lords. And there's coming a time when he will rule and reign. He will establish his kingdom on this earth. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That's what's rightfully Jesus. And that's our great hope. That's a wonderful thing. We as Christians have a wonderful hope in what's coming for us. And that helps us because sometimes this life is really hard. Sometimes this life can be miserable. We can suffer immensely. But 
there's a great hope. There's wonderful things in store for us. But even right now, as we live in what we could call this mystery period between the first and second coming, our task right now is to live for the king. Our task right now is to love the king. Right now, by his grace, we are to live like the followers of the king. We're to be changing to be like our king. We're to submit to the teachings of our king. Submit to the authority and lordship of our king. And we're to share the king's message faithfully. Okay, that's the task entrusted to us as his followers in the already and not yet. And may the Lord help us to live for and to love King Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you and praise you for the book of Matthew. And uh, Father, I, I do trust that um, our last two weeks uh, have helped us to understand uh, this amazing book uh, just uh, a little bit better. And our Lord, as we go our separate ways, I do ask you to keep us safe as we travel home. Until we meet again, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those taking this for college, you have your first quiz. Henderson Hall, please. I'll give you five minutes to study in case you forgot.